It's not every day that a writer invents a new subgenre, but that's exactly what Kelly Stanley did with her debut novel, Knox Dormienda. But first came a colorful childhood in Northern California's Mendocino County, where school was 30 miles away, the household water was pumped from a spring, and a wood-burning stove was the only source of heat. Ready to broaden her horizons in college, Kelly studied abroad in Italy, learning Latin, Greek, and earning a master's degree in classics. No wonder, then, that her first novel took place in Roman Britain. But it wasn't a typical historical novel. Kelly blended two of her greatest loves, classics and noir, hence the subgenre of Roman noir, for which the city of San Francisco awarded her a certificate of honor for inventing. Kelly's second book series is more traditional noir, centering on a private detective in early 1940s San Francisco, a detective who happens to be a woman, who also just happens to be a former escort. We'll talk to Kelly about extreme historical research, taking a book series from a small publisher to a large one, and dealing with a runaway agent, as Kelly Stanley joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Krista Beam, and today we have with us on the show novelist Kelly Stanley. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kelly. My pleasure, and it was fantastic meeting you and Kevin at the L.A. Times Festival this year. Yes, yes, we met a few weeks ago, the L.A. Times uh, Festival of Books, and um, I had the, I actually bought one of your books, um, City of Dragons, and I read it, and it was excellent, so we'll be talking Thank about you. that. Thank you. Yeah, we'll be talking about that in just a minute. So, right now, you, you're in the middle of not one, but two series of crime novels, and they're, they're both classified as noir, um, but the... The first one, the Miranda Corby series, is set in San Francisco, and it's the late 1930s, early 1940s, which is um, what you would traditionally think of as noir. Um, but the other one is set in first century Roman Britain, which is not at all what you think of as noir. But um, uh, when your first book, um, Knox Dormienda, was published, you were actually credited with creating the subgenre of Roman noir. I mean, that's that's really neat. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, the idea was sort of... I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a fan of puns, you know. I mean, I know it's a low form of humor, but I've always liked them. And one of the things you have to do as a writer, uh, especially when you're first starting out, is figure out for the reader and for the booksellers and for the librarians what it is about your book that makes it distinct mm-hmm. from every other book on the shelf. And actually, um, I was in a big panic when Knox came out, and it was originally published by a small press, um, which has to do with a long labyrinthine tale of an agent that I had that left me and ran off to Costa Rica and left me and I had to submit a book on my own. And anyway, it wound up being a happy ending because the book did get published and then I wrote another my other series and was picked up by a major publisher, Macmillan, but, uh, and also have a wonderful agent. Um, so back to, to distinguishing between my book and everything else that was on the market, um, when it came out, I thought, you know, the things that set it apart were the fact that you had a Roman, well, it was set in Roman Britain. It was set in the province that I knew and, and loved to study when I was a scholar. I was, you know, a graduate student in classics at San Francisco State University when I wrote the book. Um, I spent many long years um, learning Latin and ancient Greek and archaeology and and uh, ancient religion and cultural studies and and all kinds of things that relate to the ancient world. Uh, And I wanted to use that in my first book. So voila, I did. So I was trying to figure out, okay, here we go. He's the Roman doctor. Uh, He's a Roman Brit doctor. He's half Roman, half native Mm -hmm. in Roman Britain. That sets him apart. Um, You know, it's, it's a, it's, first of all, no one had really used a doctor as a, as a character before. The, the, Lindsay Davis is a very well-known mystery writer who, who sets her books in the same period, has a sort of detective named Falco. Stephen Saylor, whom I know, uh, and is a friend, uh, writes a great series, um, the Roma Sub Rosa series with, a guy who's a finder, who's kind of like a detective, Gordianus. So mm-hmm. I thought, this is a doctor. This is a guy who has a reason to be involved in murder and mystery. Mm-hmm. So I was really proud of myself. But then, boom, what happened is before my book had a chance to come out, in between the time when you get your publishing news and before it's published, um, a woman named Ruth Downey, who is English and uh, a writer and librarian from England, um, wrote a book about 
a Roman doctor. Oh no! Uh, in the first century BC, oh. <laughs> that was that was um, you know in Roman Britain, and um, so here we go. Plus, to add insult to injury, I had at least thought my title. You know, it was in Latin. It's going to be unique. I mean, Nox Dormienda. Uh, you're not going to hear anything like that anymore. Well, I said a Latin title will surely keep keep me set apart. No, her first title, the first title of her first book was called Medicus. So oh, she also no. put her title in Latin. And I thought, <laughs> oh my God, my career is over before my first book comes out, right? Besides, her, she was published with Bloomsbury, who's J.K. Rowling's publisher, mm-hmm. and my my book is a small press. So I thought, okay, well Kelly did deeper. What really, what what beyond the surface set your book apart? And I realized that the, one of the things I loved about writing the series, and and one of the things that keeps me going as a writer, is I love, I have a, a great passion and love for the hard-boiled vernacular of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler are my gods. Uh, Cornell Woolrich, um, David Goodis. Um, a little bit of James M. Cain. I'm not as big a fan of his as I as I am of others. But that period of of American literature is to me just just incredible. Uh, and some of the writers who worked in film noir of the mid to late 40s and early 50s are also great, like Buzz Bezzarides. Mm-hmm. Screenwriters have had always have also had a great effect on me. So when I wrote Knox, I wrote it in um, in the vein of Raymond Chandler. In other words, you have a lot of similes, you have metaphors, you have a certain lyrical rhythm that is a conscious homage to Chandler, um, but it's done completely within the literal time frame of 83 AD. So you're not going to find anything anachronistic um, in those metaphors and similes in the style. And I thought, well, what can I call this? This this is different than what anyone else has done. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the French critical term Roman noir, and you'll have to excuse me if you know, pardon me for my deplorable French accent, <laughs> is um, actually it actually means detective novel in oh. France in French. Okay, Roman noir is a detective novel, and Roman noir is what I wrote. So the whole thing is a play on words. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. So now, which which time period um, do you prefer writing? The the early 20th century or Roman? Well, I'm under contract for the Miranda series, and I'm best known for the Miranda series. And the Miranda series, because it's set in a time that most people can still relate to mm-hmm. rather easily because of film and music and tw- <laughs> the fact that it's just in the 20th century, 70 years ago, right. um, tends to be more accessible for people. So I can't tell you, if I had to say what do I enjoy more, that's sort of like saying which child do you like the best, so I can't I can't go there. But I do enjoy the ease of being able to discuss um, the more recent history um, as compared to the, the difficulties in, in trying to bring Rome and all of its strangeness um, you know, and, and get it to resonate with the modern audience. It's a much more difficult thing to me to do that with first century BC, uh, BCE. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I like one more or the other, but uh, certainly the Miranda series is, is as I said, it's, I don't have to worry as much with the translation issue because mm-hmm. the way I approach history in general is that it is something to be translated. You know, it is, history is a fluid thing. Mm-hmm. It is always written by the winners, yeah. and it is defined by those who witness it. And like um, the great film Rashomon, everyone has a different viewpoint on what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, within those parameters, we do know a few facts, but, and I always keep to those facts. But history fascinates me because, because of that personal element, there are there are there are there are important chunks of it and and meaning from it and social repercussions from it that we still have yet to deal with, mm-hmm. and uh, you know so it I'm driven to really want to make history seem as exciting as a contemporary thriller, and it's a little easier to do that with the Miranda series, um, mm-hmm. not so much the Roman series. Roman series is actually a little lighter 
because the Romans themselves, the culture was a much was much darker in some ways. Um, and the Miranda series is more or less my approach to the true noir period and my mm-hmm. reaction to the true noir period uh, with all of its cliches, with all of its misogyny, with all of its pluses and minuses and its glories and its and its uh, not so glorious moments. Um, that uh, the Miranda series, Miranda Corby series, is my response to that. And you mentioned before, uh, before the interview started when we talked, and um, you talked about listening to music of the time period when you were writing the Miranda Corby series. And obviously, that's going to be easier to do than finding music from first century Roman Britain. Um, so you find that the writing in a more recent time period is it's helpful in the writing process itself because you have more, you have easier access to, you know, genuine articles and things of that time period. Oh, absolutely. I'm a person who who likes the tactile. I like the tactile. I like the sensual, the sense, the sensory. Um, You know, we experience life with our five senses. That's how we, that's how everything's imprinted in our brains. That's how we take it in. That's how we remember things. You know, when you get a whiff of perfume and all of a sudden you're taken back to your eighth grade gym class or whatever, you know, you're, you're experiencing something that is so precious and fleeting. And that kind of richness, that kind of richness of experience is something that I try to evoke for my readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that with the music. Um, and as I was mentioning earlier, uh, the music also functions as a ironic counterpoint many times to Miranda's um, thoughts and to, and to her experiences of the world because, you know, uh, we like to think of the 40s. I know we we, ro- we romanticize it greatly within our own culture. Uh, we within popular culture, the 40s is you know the, the greatest generation, the golden era, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But really, um, all of those wonderful, you know, it had to be you, wonderful you, the way you look tonight. Well, let's go dancing cheek to cheek. All that wonderful, all those wonderful love songs and the romance and everything. All of it. All of it was marketing, and <laughs> you know, I mean, it was it was an illusion. It there were people who who were able to yes, they may have had a fairy tale life in some in some way, shape, or form, but for a lot of people, it was a very tough time to live. Mm-hmm. Um, it depended on your economic status. It depended on your race. It depended on your gender. It depended on your sexual persuasion. It depended on on everything that we have fought for all these years in terms of civil rights, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that, that is sort of conveniently left out when we put on our rose colored glasses and look at the forties. And I'm guilty of this like everyone else, because if I had a time machine, of course I would go back to 1939. You know, I would go <laughs> back to this era. I'd go see Benny Goodman at, at, at the, uh, the top of the mark and the, at the Mark Hopkins hotel in San Francisco, I'd go to treasure Island and go to the world's fair. I'd buy up a Batman number one and a detective 39 and I'd sell them later for millions of dollars. You know, <laughs> I would do all these things um, because I love the era. It was a beautiful, beautiful era, but it was also a very brutal area era for a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, especially for, for people, as I said, of a certain class, it was a, it was a hard era to be in a woman in, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so those songs bring bring out both our nostalgia for something that never really existed, except in our own imaginations, and um, they also bring out the irony of of that nostalgia compared to the reality of what it really was like, which is more or less what I, you know, in and in a, in obviously in a heightened way is what I try to have Miranda convey. Mm-hmm. It's going to be heightened because I am, after all, writing a thriller. So, right. you know, uh, you know, within people don't, uh, people don't get into as much trouble typically as, as she does, but, uh, or, or run into as much violence, but you'd be surprised. There were a lot of people who, uh, who had similar experiences and women who fought in the Spanish civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've, if you spend any time talking to our older c- c- citizens who are now sadly passing, uh, passing away on us uh, from this generation, um, you know, they, many of them had very rich and very fascinating lives unexpectedly. You know, we tend to think of people from this era as being sort of like proto Ozzie and Harriet, 
Right. Some people, Point. some people even think that they, um, you know, they get questions sometimes like about a, a Miranda's past as an escort, uh, asking me whether or not escorts were around in the 1940s. <laughs> but it's like, you know, surely you've heard of of the world's oldest profession. And yes, escort services existed. In fact, there's a 1940. Uh, B film. I mean, I mean, bottom of the barrel B film called <laughs> Escort Girl that I like to point people to if they, you know, if they have trouble believing me. Um, but yeah, the escort service she works at was a was an actual escort service at 41 Grand Avenue in San Francisco, and you know, people did not sleep in separate beds with a nightstand in between <laughs> them most of the time. The next generation to, you know, <laughs> from somewhere. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like the baby boomers. Remember that? <laughs> Everyone had six kids in ten years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, you know that's one of the ways I, I sort of get that dual dual purpose thing across between the bru- the beauty and the the beauty and the beast, the bu- beauty and the brutality, and it comes across uh, through the use of music and and it also plays a role with with bringing the past the real past to life. It's sort of like, think of it as noir, as, as all the hard-boiled stories that you've read and the and the great stuff that you've read, except without the censorship mm-hmm. that people like Hammett and Chandler encountered. You know, Hammett had to take a lot of beef when he wrote the third, when, when he wrote um, The Thin Man, because there's a reference to Nick having an erection. Oh. And uh, this was uh, this was hugely scandalous. Yeah, you know. Okay, so you know, movies, films were not the only thing to suffer from from censorship um, at the time. Books were too. Um, anyway, so that's well, I, my approach to it. Yeah, well, I you know, I, reading your book, I mean, there there was so detailed as far as. Um, you know, you used uh, places and street names and the, the the food and even, you know, telephone numbers that actually existed at the time. And it really felt like the city of San Francisco was almost a character in the book. You know, there'd be there'd be times where you would you would just step out of the narrative for a minute and just like explore the city, you know, just talk mm-hmm. about the city. And it really just became, you know, just like a, a separate character. What sort of research did you do to get that sort of intricate detail of the of place and time? Um, thank you, number one, because it's one of my aims is to really make San Francisco a character to pay homage to San Francisco. I, I, it's a special city. You know, we've had good mayors and bad mayors, um, most mostly bad mayors. <laughs> we've had good boards of supervisors and bad boards of supervisors, mostly bad boards of supervisors. But, you know, through all the political brouhaha and scandal and corruption and various problems we've had, it remains an incredibly dynamic, beautiful city, even though it's so small, you know, I mean, it's not New York, we're not open 24-7, although there there actually used to be a lot of places that were open 24-7 when Miranda, in Miranda's day, uh, in 1940. Um, so that was one of my goals. Bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, people spent a lot more time out, you know, it was a much more social social generation uh the, you know i worry about kids who text one another rather than talk to each other this would have been looked at as being as if you know they would have been treated like they were from mars mm-hmm. in 1940 i mean people engaged with one another they spent a lot of time dancing in these giant halls and uh, went to movies and in, in palaces and and sat very you know well the only thing about the only thing that holds true today is the buses are still overcrowded mm-hmm. but uh you know i mean people went out so anyway, I digress. The way I um, I research is number one, I live here, so I'm I'm fortunate that I can if I if I want to go take Miranda someplace, I usually go to that place, and I scout it out and I look around. Um, you know, I've gone to, through her office building, even though the the interior has been totally remodeled. Mm-hmm. I picked an actual building for her apartment house. Uh, you can visit it on um, Mason Street uh, off of Union Square. You know, when she goes to the St. Francis, I've actually been in the St. Francis. I mean, I, so I go to the places. Uh, since City of Dragons takes place largely in Chinatown, I spent many, many, many days in Chinatown. Um, learned where all the good food was and um, drank a lot of tea and ventured in Chinese bars and, and I, you know, had, I love Chinatown. It's one of my favorite places in the city. 
So, um, first of all, there's the hands-on, tactile, experiential sort of research that really um, nothing beats it. Nothing beats it. Um, mm. You know, I've been, I've, I've been to Europe, and I've been, I lived in Europe for a while, and I've been to England a few times, and uh, I have to. I, you know, when I write the Knox series, I, I'm recalling my experiences in England to get that same sort of flavor of the weather and the time and the daylight and the night and so forth. Mm-hmm. Living in San Francisco, I do the same thing here. The other thing I do is I rely a lot on ephemera. I don't, I, I, I suppose it's an excuse just to collect things and buy them off of eBay. Um, and if it's an excuse, I'm not going to apologize for it. It's a fun <laughs> hobby. Um, you know, I I collected this kind of stuff actually before I wrote, I started writing the series because it's, uh, ephemera has always, always fascinated me. And, and I guess I would define ephemera as the bits and bobs of uh, things like uh, um, street maps and bus tickets and postcards and matchbooks and things like that that usually get thrown away mm-hmm. over the years. But there's a surprising amount of it left over. And you can generally find it at flea markets and antique shows, and I go to those as well. Or you can look for it on eBay. And um, once in a while I'll find an object that really speaks to me, and it actually inspires plot ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, one such object was... Um, uh, World's Fair, as you know, the, the World's Fair uh, was set on Treasure Island in the San Francisco Bay in 1939 and 1940, and Miranda has a sort of a day job working at the World's Fair for Sally Rand. So mm-hmm. I was very busy looking into World's Fair. The World's Fair was 400 acres of fun. I mean, there was, there's, there's, there's tons of information and all kinds of things on the World's Fair by itself. Anyway, so <clears throat> one of the objects I found was a World's Fair ice pick. I remember this is the time when uh, number one, you didn't you didn't have the kind of refrigerators we have now, and ice was sometimes delivered to your home. My mom mm-hmm. actually remembered this when she she grew up in in Chicago, but it was much the same way. And it would be delivered in a block, or maybe come in a block, and you'd have to chip it off. Oh wow! Um, so these ice picks are ubiquitous. You can get them actually on eBay now for very little. And I found one, and I looked at it, and I felt it, and I thought, this is a murder weapon. This is the next uh-huh. murder weapon in my next book. And it became the murder weapon in City of Secrets. Oh, wow. Um, because they were very cheap. They have a wooden handle. They were just stamped World's Fair 1940, 1939. And they were literally ubiquitous. They were everywhere because they were just a common household tool and a very cheap souvenir. Another another item was a, was a bracelet that was inscribed for Nina um, that to me just had this evocation of teenage love and... It, it just had a very sweet quality about it, um, and I wanted to work that in the book, which I did. And finally, there was a matchbook. Um, I didn't know it was a matchbook. Actually, it was a sealed envelope, and on the envelope was um, was an inscription, and it said, Happy Dreams, Annie. P.S. I found my license, too. This was written <laughs> in pencil. Now, literally, this was written on pencil on this envelope. Now, and the envelope was sealed, but from the shape of it and feeling it on the inside, um, I suspected that it held a book, a, a really big book of souvenir matches. Um, matches at the time were often painted, and when you open the match cover, the matches themselves would be painted in, in some sort of scene. I mean, really, they have... A, you can look it up on the internet if you don't believe me. But <laughs> they've got they were really cool. Their uh, matches were like an lost art in the in the in the 30s and 40s. So um, anyway, I had a feeling it was a, uh, a book of souvenir matches from the World's Fair, and uh, I was the first person, I guess, to open that envelope since it had been sealed, you know, Gosh. 71 years ago. So I opened it up, and sure enough, it was a book of matches. But then the inscription kept driving me crazy. Um, Happy Dreams, Annie, PSFM, my license, too, written in pencil. And that matchbook actually plays a huge role in the plot of City of Secrets, with the inscription and all. Oh, wow. So I actually took that, 
item and 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 it became a key point a clue and a key point to to some of the things that happen um, in City of Secrets. So the ephemera, I mean, it's not just getting the details right technically. It's also an incredibly rich fountain of inspiration for my writing, for the plot, and for everything else. It just sort of propels me forward. And then, of course, last but not least, um, I go to the library and I go through volumes and volumes of newspapers. Uh, mm-hmm. Newspapers are your best source for, for daily life in San Francisco. They can tell you with whether or not it rained on a particular day. They can yeah. tell you um, what was playing at a movie house. You know? mm-hmm. And I, get, I like to get all those details right. Um, so, you know, the, the library, we have a great history room in San Francisco at the main library. I spend time there, and I spend time in the periodical section pouring through microfilm. Well, now there's a lot of, um, as you said, there's a, a lot of um, places that um, are in your books that are, were real places, and like Miranda's escort service was a real thing. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any legal issues that come up when you write about a real place? For example, the Pickwick Hotel, which is still alive and kicking in San Francisco. Um, yep. In your book, um, a murder takes place there, and there's seedy okay. characters that go in and out or when when you before that's published do you is there any issue with the the current establishment that says you know that that you have to clear before you can print something like that not so far knock on wood (laughs) (laughs) um no one has um has sent me anything or objected to it and my publisher hasn't as i mentioned before the legal issues tend to be things like song lyrics which Mm -hmm. If I go over a certain length in my quotations of song lyrics, I have to actually pay for a license from the copyright holders. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, you know, I think there is legally speaking, you're protected when a pub, when a when a uh, it's a work of fiction, and that's clearly stated. And when you have a uh, something takes place in a well-known establishment. As -hmm. far as the Pickwick's concerned, I love it. Um, I have a personal attachment to it. One reason why it was in City of Dragons, actually two reasons. Number one, it's mentioned in the Maltese Falcon, and um, I was wanting to, and also John's Grill is mentioned in the Maltese Falcon. That's where Sam Spade eats. That's apparently also where Hammett used to eat when he worked for Pinkerton, which was right next door in the in the flood building at the time. Mm-hmm. They later moved into the Monadnock building, which is where they are in 1940 when Miranda knows the, knows Alan, the Pinkerton, the City of Dragons. Anyway, so uh, I wanted to get in the um, John's Grill, which I did in City of Secrets, and in City of Dragons, I got in the Pickwick. And the second reason I wanted to um, have a scene set there is what, because <laughs> I grew up in Humboldt County, and for our eighth grade trip, um, they drove us to San Francisco, and we stayed in the Pinkerton. And let me tell you, a murder could have definitely taken place <laughs> there at the time because it was seedy and it was run down. It's not now. It's a beautiful hotel, but it was, you know, the neighborhood was pretty sketchy and it was, uh, it was, I remember the experience and I'm sure it's been dramatized in, in my mind. You know, I was only 14, but at the same time, it left a deep impression on me, uh, which then worked itself out later as a scene of a particularly gruesome murder in City of Dragons. That's so funny. Well, I want to <laughs> um, switch gears just a little bit um, and talk about your experience um, with your first agent and your current agent and how that process sort of, that, that entire story, if you could just walk, walk sure. through that. Well, for start, to start, I was in grad school when I wrote Knox Dormienda, and I was finishing up grad school when I was trying to get an agent. And I was very reluctant because of my own personal stubbornness um, to spend any money on doing anything uh, with writing unless I knew that I could really make it. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go through the process and, and feel like, oh, I'm going to go join this association. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. If I, and I, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to do it if I didn't really feel like I could make it as a professional. So, uh, plus, I was kind of busy writing my thesis. Um, and, you know, what happened is I, I basically did, got ready to do the agent search, and I wrote some query letters. 
and I got one that I I would find one that I enjoyed. And I did an, an internet search, and I bought the I bought a couple books first: Literary Marketplace and Jeff Herman's Guide to Agents, which I recommend to everyone who needs an agent because they're still very very good resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm often asked questions about agents and how to find one, and I always point people in this direction. The second thing I did is I did an internet search, and I happened to, I was looking for agents that represented mystery, and I decided to do a search for Rome um, because, you know, the Roman noir thing. Mm-hmm. And um, somehow or another, I came up with an agent who said she was looking for mystery in the vein of Lindsay Davis. Well, I thought, that's perfect. Lindsay Davis writes Roman-set mysteries, mm-hmm. so I will send a query letter to this woman who was wrapped by at least a couple of people that I've heard of. So I sent her the uh, query letter. She sent me back, um, you know, asking a, a note saying she'd like to see the partial. I sent her a partial. She sent back. She wanted, um, she emailed me and said she wanted a, uh, the, man, the full manuscript and she wanted it exclusively, which means that you are then committing not to let anyone, any other agent see this manuscript. So by that time I was getting kind of excited. So I sent it back to her. And then she signed me, and she said she wanted to represent the entire series, mm-hmm. which is all well and good. So, see, I was like, this is this is your this is your typical Cinderella story, right? <laughs> Here I am, I'm struggling, you know, I'm not knowing what I'm going to do. I'm I'm in grad school. I don't know whether I should go for my PhD and go, you know, continue on and get my doctorate, or whether I'm going to cast all of this this aside, my scholarly career aside, because I've been published as a scholar and you know, I speak as I've lectured internationally and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to cast this aside, and I'm going to try to be a professional writer. So uh, I thought, well, everybody said getting an agent so hard. I mean, come on. I just sent a query to the very first agent, and she signed me to an exclusive. I've got it made. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and this is, when is the music, <laughs> this is when the music cue the music to, like, Danny Elfman, and when he gets really dark, okay, that's yeah. when it starts coming up. So what happens is this this particular person is a very nice woman, but she was, I think, in a kind of difficult spot in her life. And for whatever reason, um, after sending my book out to maybe five people, which is nothing, and actually one of them wound up, which I didn't know until way later, had said she she would wanted to see a rewrite of some particular scenes, but she was actually interested in it. But that still, for whatever reason, the agent didn't really... The, the agent didn't really push me on this, and that's lesson number one. If you get any editor at a house that says, I like this, I'd like to see a rewrite, and you're a first-time writer, my advice is talk to that editor and find out exactly what they want. And if at all, if you can at all do it, if it still maintains, you know, sticks with your vision, mm-hmm. take a look at your book and try to work it in because, yeah. you know, it's difficult. But anyway, as I said, I didn't know about that. Um, and after about sending it to like five people, she left for Costa Rica. Well, I was on my own, and the thing is, um, because from Costa Rica, she wasn't going to be doing any business. She said, I'm sorry, you know, bye-bye exclusive. I can't do anything for you right now. Um, So here I was. I knew nobody else in the business, and uh, time was getting short, and I was thinking, you know, I've only got to give myself a little bit of time to see if I can make it in this business. I can at least get get some kind of validation of being published so the only person I knew was my erstwhile agent and I I said well okay I understand you're not going to rep me anymore but do you have any do you have any advice because you know I really I'm she said well are you in a hurry to get published okay number one anyone who's written a book is in a hurry to get published (laughs) okay there is no one who who isn't in a hurry to get published and you know I I can't I went back to school at a rather mature age and so I was like I don't have the time to waste I'm not 15 you know I've got to I got to get get going and you already had editors interested right that weren't going to necessarily be interested forever if you weren't exactly yeah and I and like I said I didn't know that at that time because it wasn't something that she discussed with me Mm -hmm. but anyway uh we what we wound up what she wound up saying is well you can send your book directly to five star which is a small library press that goes through Gale Cengage which is a much bigger academic press 
Um, and your books will get reviewed in the big four publications, which are Library Journal, Booklist, Publishers Weekly, and Kirkus, which means it gets industry notice. And, you know, she said it's a, it's a place to start. Mm-hmm. And you can do it on your own. You don't need an agent to do this. So, you know, they pay you the minimum. The minimum is still acceptable to be uh, an active Mystery Writers of America member, for example. Uh, but they do, but still, they, they meet the minimum standards, which is important. Some publishers won't even, won't do that. And those publishers are not on the accepted list of MWA. Well, all this stuff, are, are, these are things I was learning as I was going along. So I, I said, well, what do I have to lose? And I sent in the book. And um, like three months later, and in the meantime, I took a part-time job. And three months later, um, I or two months later, I got the word that they wanted to publish it, which was a heady experience. I mean, there's nothing like getting that first um, first notice that somebody's actually paying you anything for the <laughs> craziness that's in your brain. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's an awesome feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point is when I really started to invest in myself. And, I, and my advice to others is don't wait. Invest in yourself from the beginning. But as I said, I was stubborn. So I had to play catch up, and I I joined Mystery Writers of America. I joined uh, Sisters in Crime. I enjoy I joined um, every kind of of organization, private writer, private eye writers of America, International Association of Crime Writers, and finally I joined International Thriller Writers. And I and all these organizations where I can meet other people who from all walks, from New York Times bestsellers down to people like me who are just getting. Who you know who had just gotten the word I was going to be published, but didn't have a book out yet. Mm-hmm. Down to people who were still in the in the trying to get published phase. So you know, and you meet agents and editors, and you know, these organizations are the lifeblood of the community. And it was through one of the organizations, which is ITW International Thriller Writers, they had this incredible program, and they still do, called um, the Debut Author Program. Uh, when I was in it, we were actually the first pilot year program. So there weren't as many of us at the time. And um, it, it was just a great experience. It was like having college fraternity or sorority friends, I guess, because we were all in the same boat. There were lots of us who would who would get together on the Internet in a chat room um, who all had different books coming out, but roughly had the books coming out at the same year. Hmm. So we would be, we'd swap information and stories and and, you know, frustrations and gossip, and we all learned and kind of grew together. And, of course, even to this day, we've all remained friends, and whenever one of my my classmates, I guess you could say, is at a conference, um, you know, we get together. It's like, oh, my God, oh, it's so good to see you, and, you know, you, we have a special bond. Hmm. Well, one of my friends, um, one of the, my best friends that I met through this program and as I said, it was all online, remember, because this is like these are people who live in faraway places. And so the person I'm about to mention lives in Hawaii. Her name is Rebecca Cantrell, and she writes an excellent series of books, starting with a, um, a game, uh, well, her newest one's called A Game of Lies, but her first one's called A Trace of Smoke. Mm-hmm. She writes the Hannah Vogel series. And she, like I, writes historical noirish fiction, okay? So Becky and I had a lot in common. And, you know, I was sharing with her um, the story of my second book, um, and that was City of Dragons. Now, I had made the decision, because I was published with Five Star with Knox, and I, I learned after being published, you know, after I signed the deal, that major publishers never pick up a series from a, from a small press. Mm-hmm. They they almost never do it, and it's not like once you've sold a book, you can't sell it twice, and and you can't and and if I couldn't sell the second in the series, which I'd already written, mm-hmm. um, then I'd have to write a whole new series to move to a major publisher, which of oh. course became my goal. Uh-huh. So um, that's why I, you know, and I had always wanted, I never wanted to get pigeonholed into Rome or any any particular era either. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm going to write the noir novel that I want to write. You know, I'm going to write the noir novel that's um, going to be from the femme fatale's point of view. Uh, she's going to be the shameless, not the villainous. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I conceived of the whole con- the, the concept of the Miranda Corby series, and 
City of Dragons. And so while I was while I was learning and going through this phase of, of being published or, or about to be published for the first time, I was also writing my second series, hoping that I could sell that that series to a major publisher and get out of small press. Not because Five Star is a bad place. Five Star is an amazingly wonderful place, and I love the people there. They, they treat you beautifully. But mm-hmm. if you really want to make a living at this, and yeah. you have any hope to make a living, and you want to have a, a, a readership, you need, you need a bigger publisher. Uh-huh. Because you need you need them behind you. You need the distribution, and you need the you know you need the press. Uh-huh. So um, in the meantime, I was really lucky, and uh, um, I went to a few conferences. And as I said, I was playing catch up, but I learned very fast, and I felt like I was getting this amazing education. I was meeting all these wonderful people, which is the best secret, the best kept secret of the mystery writing community is that we're just. It's, they're just wonderful people. I'm privileged to be a part of it. I, people are, are just they're generous to a fault and beautiful people. They they do not foam at the mouth and carry <laughs> daggers, you know. And I mean, really, I mean, you'd think, but given what we write, that we're like that, but we're not. Anyway, um, so Knox wound up winning the Bruce Alexander Award for Best Historical Mystery of the Year, which was phenomenally surprising and. Um, you know, I I was stunned and amazed. I, I was stunned and amazed when it was nominated. And in between its nomination and its um, and the, when it actually won, um, we wound up selling City of Dragons. But it, I sold City of Dragons. So I'm going to back up because I just realized I skipped ahead. I sold City of Dragons because remember back in the ITW virtual online world with my classmates and we all have these books coming out. Uh-huh. Becky Cantrell, my friend. She signed with an agency that is um, at the time was the Reese Halsey Agency, and it was located in Northern California in Paris. And she said, "I really think you should go with my agency. They've they've repped. They like literary people. They like literary genre books. They like you know they've they've repped Aldous Huxley and um, all kinds of people. You know." Mm-hmm. Um, William Faulkner, and that's so I said, well, wow. <laughs> good enough for Huxley, it's good enough for me. So anyway, Becky kept bugging me and bugging me, and because uh, and I really hate, 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 hate having to ask for representation. It's just, a, it's just, I know exactly how painful it is. It's like going into a, a singles bar when you're over 40, you know, and it's, I mean, it's really awful. So you just feel totally bad. Um, so I put it off. But Becky, God bless her, she kept saying, "Have you got? Have you sent it to my agent yet?" So I said, "No." But then finally, I said, "Damn it! I really do need an agent. I can't go forward without an agent." And I've got this manuscript almost finished. So Becky sent an email to her agent, who then sent an email to the head of the agency, who was Kimberly Cameron, and I wound up getting it to Kimberly. Kimberly loved it, and even though the book was not finished, it was a partial. It was only about 25% finished. Mm-hmm. She signed me. Oh wow! On the basis of that book, of the first part of City of Dragons, and the fact that I, you know, I'd completed Knox, um, and then it, as I said, we went on to I went on to complete City of Dragons. She put it on the market in January of um, 2000. I guess it would have been January 2009, and was it 2009? Yeah, I think so. And um, it, it was right at the time when all of publishing collapsed. <laughs> you know, just following my lot from Costa Rica to the collapse of publishing. Now, literally, Random House like imploded and cut a whole bunch of editors. And I was like, what is this about me? Is it just my luck? Am I having some kind of karma curse? Because I'm like, you know, I keep thinking my career is going to be over. Um, but actually, and it was also in the middle of, you know, hello economy. So everything, I mean, the world was like in this giant upheaval and I've got this, this strange crusading feminist noir book that's sort of, you know, it's different than anything out there. And, you know, it's on the market and, and I was just, I was scared, but Kimberly within three weeks had, bids from multiple houses and we wound up selling it to Macmillan and um, you know and then I had a two book contract and City of Dragons wound up being a phenomenal success and it it, you know was 
on the 10 best of, of the year list of in the Chronicle and the Florida Sun Sentinel and was a, a Los Angeles Times Book Prize finalist and it won the McCavity for best historical novel of the year at BoucherCon and it was a Seamus nominee and just I mean, it, it was it was a, a big thing and um, was was pretty well received. And you know, if I if it hadn't been for Becky pushing me to get to Kimberly mm-hmm. and having that in, you know, because she was able because she knew Kimberly and she obviously had a, she her agent Elizabeth was with was at the agency at that point. You know, she was able to send him an email and saying, hey, don't get this, let this get in the slush pile, look at this person's book. Mm-hmm. And then Kimberly seeing, you know, seeing the potential in, in the 25% that I showed her, you know, I mean, otherwise nothing would have happened that way. But that is how it happened. So getting an agent is, it's, it's serendipity. It, you have to find the right agent. That right agent sort of has to find you. Mm-hmm. Um and you just have to keep looking. You really have to look until something clicks, and you have to keep showing the person what you've got. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, if I had sent Kimberly just the sequel to Knox Dormienda, she wouldn't have signed me. But I sent her the 25% of City of Dragons that wasn't finished. Mm-hmm. She signed me for that. So you sort of, you know, you just you have to show them what you've got. You've got to show, show them everything you've got, really. And just be as honest as you can and try not to feel too much like you're, you know, in a singles bar at, a, <laughs> at the wrong, you know, at, a, at the wrong age. <laughs> well, and, and you never know, like, you know, it's just a matter of matching yourself up with one other person. So even if you send out a hundred queries and get a hundred rejections, the hundred and first person could be your soulmate, so to speak. And, you know, you just exactly. can't, you don't want to. It's really, it is really like a marriage. It's like, you have to know, you have to accept the fact that, and it's hard, you have to accept the fact that if an, one agent does not like your book, that doesn't mean that your book is bad. Now, right. if you run it by 100 agents, all of whom are reputable and all of whom have clients that you, that you admire and respect, and the agents tell you the same thing mm-hmm. about your book, then you can go back and take a look at it. Now, yeah. and, and, you know, and the other thing to note is if you do get criticism from an agent, that's a compliment. It's yeah. a hard is it's hard it's a hard compliment to swallow, but it is a compliment because they're taking the time out to tell you what they think needs to be fixed because they see a lot of potential in that book. Mm-hmm. If it didn't have potential, they wouldn't they would not give you a, any sort of criticism or feedback at all. Right, they wouldn't so waste feed, time on you at all. Exactly, yeah. because they have no time. I mean, <laughs> agents still they get thousands upon thousands of emails a week. And, you know, when they get to a query or they get to a manuscript, they, they have no time to give you a, a critique. They're not there for manuscript critiques. They're there to sign clients to sell a book. Mm-hmm. So if you get a critique, that is almost as good as getting a yes. It yeah. doesn't feel as good by any means, but it is almost as good. And that's the thing I have to tell people is, you know, don't give up when you get criticized by an agent or by an editor because that means that they see something in you that's worth their time to mm-hmm. help. So, it's like going to that bar and at least striking up a conversation, even if it doesn't <laughs> lead to anything long term. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I mean, maybe you can, you know, or somebody comes over to you and says, honey, you know, get a new pair of shoes or why don't you get, try another, another shade of nail polish or, you know, whatever, you yeah. know, I, I'm going to give you the card to my hairstylist, yeah. whatever is going to work. You know, someone's taking the time to try to help you because they see potential in you. Mm-hmm. And that is really important. If that happens, then it's as much as though it feel it, it may feel like, it, it may feel like you're not being successful, but it really is a success. Mm-hmm. And you have to just keep going and going and going. And always go back to the manuscript. Like I said, if you do get 100 people who say one particular scene or one particular element needed mm-hmm. work, make sure you pay attention to that and you go back and work on it too. Right. And then resubmit it. Now, um, can you talk for just a minute about how um, uh, you were saying how Nox Dormienda was was done through a small press and then the sequel was done – through a large press. I know that's something that very rarely happens. Um, is that all because of, of Kimberly Cameron or how was that? How did that come well, about? Um, it came about from um, a number of reasons, I guess. Um, 
I was very lucky. Mm-hmm. I had an editor who liked my writing a great deal, and um, the publisher believed in me enough to, you know, sign it up. So what happened is I had written the sequel to Knox Dormienda before I actually was published. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd written two books um, before the first one was had been accepted for publication. Um, the sequel, which the original title was Maledictus, and then we, they changed it to The Curse Maker because the publisher decided they didn't want a Latin title. <laughs> and besides, Ruth Downey, as we know, already cornered the market on Latin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, the, the, the sequel I wrote sort of after a, a quick trip to England that I took to speak um, at the University of London. Um, that was related to my scholarship, uh, and it was also sort of a graduation present. And while I was there pontificating about the Roman historian Sallust and everything else that I was talking about at the university, I took a side trip to Bath and did some hands-on research with curse tablets, which was always an interesting, which was always a specialty of mine as a classicist. That's a, it's an area of, of particular interest to me. Uh, curses and curse tablets and witchcraft and, and cult and how it all combines in, uh, along with gender studies. Um, all it all combines uh, within the um, life of, of, of a Roman citizen. So um, I went to Bath and I did that uh, thanks to the uh, curator of the museum at the Roman Museum in Bath. I actually got to see some, some curse tablets that are not on display mm-hmm. to the general public and I got to hold some, oh, you know. Wow. Uh, so I was, and again, you know, the tactile uh, feeling, the, 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 just that sensation of being able to pick this object up and see it and study it, it really just cemented everything that I wanted. You know, it cemented my theories and mm-hmm. that I had imagined about how they were made and, and everything else. There's actually original research in, in the Curse Maker because it's, sort, it's still an area that a lot of people haven't completely done to death, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's actually some original research, some original scholarship in the, in the novel. And this this particular research trip helped confirm that original research for, research for me. So then I went home in a frenzy and I wrote The Curse Maker. And then, you know, I graduated and blah, blah, blah. And then fast forward, here I am. I just sold Knox and then I sold City of Dragons. So I, now I was had realized my dream of being with um, a big publisher. Because keep in mind, there are only six major publishers in the world. Everything mm-hmm. else is an, imp- is an imprint. Mm-hmm. So I was with Macmillan, which makes me very happy. Macmillan is a terrific publisher. And I thought, well, you know, I would really like, I have this book sitting here. I'm going to edit it and polish it and uh, in between assignments, and maybe I can, you know, sell it. Because if I have it, it's sitting here. I've already been published. I need to, you know, if you've got, as a writer, I don't like to let anything lie fallow. I mean, if I've written something, I want it to be out there sure, for people yeah. to read. Yeah. So um, I, I approached my editor, and surprise, surprise, they bought it. <laughs> So uh, I found myself at a very, very early point in my career with two books and two two series, and that was actually last year. Uh, Curse Maker came out in February, and City of Secrets came out in September. So um, it was quite interesting, but yeah. it is very unusual. Yeah, it's very unusual because most of the time, um, major publishers won't pick up a series from a small press at all. Um, if they do, they might pick up a, a series that had many, you know, it was a long-running series. And, and there was only Knox Dormienda in mine. You know, mm-hmm. granted, it had won an award and been nominated for others, but still. So it was it was a rarity. And Kimberly put to get to the deal together. That's what agents do. I mean, they mm-hmm. look out for your best interest, and they, they finesse with with your editor to make sure that you're protected and review the contract to make sure that things like e-rights and, and everything is on the up and up because um, publishers just, you know, the standard, the standard role of a publishing contract is antagonistic and that's what writers always have to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by antagonistic, I mean, they're going to try to get whatever they can get from you for nothing. Right. And um, they will try to get your movie rights. They will try to get your film rights. They will try to get your foreign la- right, foreign language rights. You know, I mean, Knox has been published in 
Italian and, and Greek. I was almost said ancient Greek, but no, it hasn't been published <laughs> in ancient Greek, but it hasn't been published in Greek. For that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, because we retain the foreign rights, I have a separate foreign rights agent. I have, a, I have wonderful film agents uh, in L.A. who um, who represent all my work. So, I mean, I, you know, I have a whole team of people who represent particular interests of mine, but the, I, the, the point is that if you don't have a good literary agent in general watching over the contract that you sign, then the publisher would just take all those rights. They would want, you know, and that's part of the, that's part of the bargaining when, when you sell a book is, you know, between your publisher, I mean, between your editor and your agent uh, of who gets what kind of rights. For example, Macmillan kept the audio rights, so they sold the audio rights to City of Dragons, which is why it's on Audible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, we kept the foreign rights, the foreign language rights. We kept the film rights, or the video game rights, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So it kind of just depends, you know. Um, but that's what that's what agents do. They they put it together after consultation with you and and try to figure out what they can save for you, so that you have a chance of making a little bit more money. Mm-hmm. Um, because money is hard to come by in any profession, particularly for writers. Right. Well, it's got to be great having just a team that's so on your side, you know, that believes in you so much. Oh, it is. I mean, there have been times when, um, you know, when you're, when you're feeling low or whatever you can, I have a wonderful team because they're all, they're all terrific people. Uh, Kimberly is, uh, is an awesome person. She's just a lovely, lovely lady. And, uh, my film team is Cinelit and, uh, Mary Alice and Anna. Uh, they are both phenomenal, professional, delightful women who are just, uh, two of the classiest people in Hollywood and you know, Hollywood and class are not two words you often hear together. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) And for a reason. (laughs) And, um, and you know, they, they, they are, but they truly are. And I just, I love them. You know, I mean, I consider my agents good friends, uh, which is a nice position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. I consider my, my editor an excellent friend too. Because I know that uh, he is looking out for me, and he is my champion at the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but I'm also lucky because uh, St. Martin's Press, which is the the umbrella that I'm under, uh, Minotaur Books, uh, which is the mystery imprint for St. Martin's Press, um, they're they're a terrific uh, they're a terrific place to be. So we're just about out of time. There was one more thing I wanted to ask you before we go, and I was curious about your. Um, your your daily writing process on an on an ordinary day you wake up and do you write at home do you prefer to write out in public noise uh, no noise what 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 works best for you well if i'm lucky and i don't have a lot of interruptions which is always the hard part about writing at home um i if i normally speaking i've had a day job all this time and i mm-hmm. technically still do have a day job i've just been um, taking some time off because of personal reasons to do with family losses. Um, but under normal circumstances, I trained myself to go to work. I work half time, come home in the afternoon, you know, take care of the dog, grab some water, some tea, sit down in front of my computer, not check email, <laughs> and just go straight to working for like two to three solid hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I have a day off, like on Friday, um, I would just wake up and do that from morning through till evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I write is from front to back. So I, um, I, you know, begin at the beginning and work my way through. Now, the Miranda Corby books are built on a five-act classical structure, mm-hmm. um, and I do use an outline for some of that structure to sort of give it the underpinnings that it needs. The 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 um, outline also relieves me of of a lot of worry and a lot of preoccupation with plot points when I want to be concentrating on things that are more important to me as a writer. Um, you know, I usually have multiple plot threads. Uh, there are three major plot threads in the book that I'm writing on that I'm writing right now. There were three in City of Secrets, and uh, in order to interweave those through, you know, which one might be a Miranda's personal journey, 
One may be, you know, something related to one case. Someone might be something related to another case. So in order to weave, we, you know, get this these events straight, the outline is like a roadmap. But also the outline is still sketchy. Mm-hmm. So I give myself leeway to, and this is to me is the most enjoyable part of the process, is to be spontaneous. I want to be able to be surprised at what happens next. If I knew exactly what would happen next, I'd be bored to death. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I would. I mean, it's like I know some people work well by just making such a specific outline that it's like everything is, is right there. But to me, if you have an outline that much, you've written the book. Right. I, I want to be able to, to have the serendipity of having something unexpected happen. Mm-hmm. And also, if I found some interesting bit of research, like the other day I discovered, I discovered something called uh, about this particular fund that was set up in 1937 that was a eugenics fund. Uh, and City of Secrets, as I think I mentioned to you when we were in L.A., mm-hmm. has a lot to do with the eugenics movement in, in, in California and in America and how it influenced the Nazis with the, mm-hmm. with the Holocaust. Right. Anyway, I, I found out about this particular fund, and um, and it's actually still going. It's a monetary fund that gives grants to academics, and it's actually still going today, even with this horrible history that it has. And apparently, it's still funding revisionists, um, you know, Holocaust deniers, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I discovered it, and I found a way to work it in to City of Ghosts. Um, you know, I found I, there was a Picasso exhibit in San Francisco um, late last year, and a Picasso exhibit worked its way into City of Ghosts. You know, there mm-hmm. was I found out that actually through a newspaper article that there was a Picasso exhibit in the city at the time that when the when the story takes place. So that was spontaneous. I didn't plan for there to be a Picasso exhibit that was going to have something to do with the plot. <laughs> But I found out that it was there, and all of a sudden it clicked. Mm-hmm. So that kind of freedom, I need that kind of freedom because I think that's that's the joy to me is being able to say, oh, my God, yes, this will work. This is so exciting. This is going to, you know. Yeah. I mean, just, just like two days ago, somebody walked into a room that I didn't expect to walk into a room. I had no intention of this person walking into a room. But sure enough, there he was knocking on the door, <laughs> and he walked into a room. So, you know, I mean, that's the kind of – freedom I need. So my outlines are not rigid. They're just sort of, they're there to keep me on pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my chapters tend to be from 10 to 14 pages long, usually on the short side. Huh. Usually I don't like to go, go to 14. They're usually between 10 and 12, sometimes shorter. Uh, because it is a thriller. It's a mystery thriller. I have to keep the reader turning the page. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, between the five acts, uh, chapter lengths, and and the fact that I've got to have certain events happen at certain times, there's your outline. Yeah. Um, so also having the outline allows me when I come home from work or if I come home from any event just to sit down and work. And I prefer to work at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that I can't write in a, in a cafe, but, you know, I'm comfortable here. I could take off my shoes. <laughs> I can get in my pajamas if I want to. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, you know, I mean, and as long as I have the phone on do not disturb, I can kind of just block things out and concentrate on the, on the computer screen and just move. Plus, I save money by not being at Starbucks, you know. I mean, it's like I can make my own coffee, <laughs> thank you. I've got a much better selection of tea. Yeah. And, you know, um I and the only I'm always really... afraid to get up and leave my walk away and leave my computer on the table. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And, pl- and besides, it's very difficult to block out somebody's conversation if it's loud and they're on a cell phone and they're saying, mm-hmm. "Well, like you know, like he was just so over her like three years ago. It was like you know, get over it." I mean, when you hear that kind of stuff, it's, it's, it just distracts you, you know. Yeah. And um, and I, and you can't help but. Oh, eavesdrop because eavesdropping and there is really no such thing as eavesdropping anymore because all sort all privacy seems to have been has broken down in the era of the ubiquitous iPhone or iPhone clone and mm-hmm. you know people have these conversations and as a writer you observe people that's what you're supposed to do as a writer so mm-hmm. it's difficult to tune out that part of your brain and say I'm not really going to pay attention to you I'm going to focus on this 
Right. So, you know, at home I can I can listen to the right music, I can get in the mood, I can have my own tea, I can pet my dog, I can, you know, move the cat off the pile of papers where the cat <laughs> will always go, yeah. and I can work. <laughs> So, yeah, that always sounds always being able to write in your pajamas is always a good if that's an option, that's always a big a big plus there. So it is, you know. I mean actually what I've done is I have this hat. You know, as you know, I I usually I always, as a matter of fact, wear a fedora of some kind to public appearances. And I'd like to say this was some sort of genius marketing idea, but it wasn't. It was um, it came about because when I went to my first big conference, which was in Alaska, it was BoucherCon, and it was being held at Anchorage that year. The group that I had mentioned earlier, the ITW debut author group, oh, some of us were meeting for the very first time in person mm-hmm. in Alaska. So I said, well. You know, I don't know how big this is going to be. I hear that it's huge. And so I'll just wear, I always like hats anyway. So I said, I'll just wear a fedora, um, and that way you'll be able to spot me across a crowded room. So I wore a fedora, and then it became sort of expected that, well, I'll, Kelly will wear a fedora. And so then it became an author trademark. And I had my first author photos taken in a fedora. Mm-hmm. Then I had my second group of author photos taken in a fedora. And so now everyone expects to see me in a fedora. So I have an enormous fedora collection. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> to say. But, you know, um, I can't even remember where I was going with this. I was saying, oh, the fedora. So I wear the fedora. And um, even when I'm writing at home, um, because I live with someone, if there's anyone in the house and my family in the house, and I don't want to be disturbed. I wear this beat-up brown fedora, and I put it on my head, and that way, if you know I'm seen wearing this fedora, um, everyone knows, don't talk to Kelly. Don't interrupt her. <laughs> Just don't pay attention to her until she takes the fedora off, and then she's safe to talk to. Because the last thing you want to do is be interrupted with a, hi, honey, I'm home, when, like, you're in the middle of some kind of storm and drung, you know, tense, you know, so seen, right? Um, and, and you know, it just sort of kills the mood, yeah, uh, and pops you out of what you need to be. Because I, as a writer, I tend to really live right there next to my character. I tend to experience what she experiences, and I'm I'm right next to her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the hat helps. In short, <laughs> <laughs> that was a, a symbol there to say like, leave me alone. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. I think you gave us a lot of really good, helpful information for for aspiring writers. Oh, well, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure, and it was a complete pleasure to meet you and Kevin in in Los Angeles. And I love your website. I think Scripts and Scribes is beautiful. The design is is elegant and easy to use. It's a terrific website, and I'm really proud to to be able to be a part of it. Great. Well, thank you so much. um, My pleasure. (laughs) um, Kelly's newest book in the Miranda Corby series, City of Secrets, and also her newest Roman noir novel, The uh, Curse Maker, are both available now. And you can visit her website at kellystanley.com, and that's Kelly with an I, not a Y. And if you have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com, or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. And there's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.